Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial. Spreading the truth of the Catholic faith in the New York City metropolitan area. All of you out there at Veritas know what I'm about to say. Download the app, the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app, so that you could have access to all of our station's content, not just the front line with Joe and Joe. And wherever you see Joe and I on social media, primarily on YouTube at the front line with Joe and Joe until they kick us off, uh, the front line with Joe and Joe. Hit a like, a subscribe, a share. Help us out over there. And today, uh, we are very pleased and honored to be welcoming to the program for the first time, Philip Campbell. And we're going to be discussing his new book out from Tan Books, Wounds of Love, the story of St. Padre Pio. Joe, I love talking about Padre Pio. I don't know about you. Padre Pio is the best. Um, so, Phil, just so you know, Joe and I were very much looking forward to this conversation because I, I just when we talk about saints, obviously, he is a very modern saint, Padre Pio. Uh, a lot of people have a devotion to him, too, and we're, we're going to have a lot of fun. And then we're going to learn a lot in this conversation. Uh, for those of you out there, who are not familiar with Philip Campbell. He is the author of several books, including Story of the Church and the four-volume Story of Civilization series. He also contributed to and edited a number of books and wrote two history textbooks. He's an instructor at Homeschool Connections and previously served two terms as mayor of Howell, Michigan. Campbell has a bachelor's degree in European history from Ave Maria University and a certificate in secondary education from Madonna University. Campbell has appeared on EWTN, uh, Ave Maria Radio, Radio Maria, Good Shepherd Catholic Radio, Mater Dei Radio, and on the Crawford Broadcasting Network. Campbell and his children live in southern Michigan. Philip Campbell, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe, brother. I'm going to have to add your radio network to that list now. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. So we're very pleased to be on the show. Like I said, Phil, we love Padre Pio. So this is going to be a very good conversation, fun conversation. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. So, Phil, what what compelled you to write the book? I know uh, you dedicated the book to your son um, on the occasion Mm -hmm. of his confirmation. Uh, Do you guys as a family have a devotion to Padre Pio? Well, uh, yeah, that was always a, uh, that, that was a saint that was, uh, in my, you know, in my son's life from, uh, from early on. And, you know, he had pictures of him in his room when he was younger and whatnot, but, um, in terms of like bringing this project to fruition through tan, uh, it was kind of part of a bigger vision that, that I had where, um, I, the story of civilization books that you guys mentioned, um, are from tan as well. And, those books are very popular, and the reason they're very popular is because they incorporate historical fiction stories into the narrative to kind of help kids 
understand what it is what it was like to live in this in the various periods of history that they talk about and i started thinking after we were wrapping up the story of civilization project that we should have uh some great historical fiction books on the lives of the saints and of course there already are plenty of those out there there's uh excellent books by ignatius press and the uh, the vision series and bethlehem books and all these historical fiction works but what i started noticing was that many of these uh books were published back in the 40s or 50s uh, and that there was many contemporary saints who had been canonized since that time that uh, did not have dedicated works of historical fiction. So top of the list, obviously, was Padre Pio. He's clearly, like, like you guys said, he's one of the greatest modern saints. He's one of the most beloved, most recognizable saints in the church today. And I thought this was a fantastic place to start. And so I went to Tan and said, let's do this and let's start with Padre Pio. And they said, that's fantastic. And so uh, that was what we launched with. And uh, so far, the reception's been been fabulous. And, you know, as long as it continues that way, there's going to be more books in, in uh, this series about other saints. But that so I guess Padre Pio was the, the flagship saint of, uh, of this project just because he's so universally beloved. Absolutely. Philip Campbell joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. So you get into his life, obviously, from from early on. I didn't know this about him. He, so he was basically a farm boy. So, you know, Southern Italy, uh, Petrocina, I believe, is his uh, hometown. Um, I could associate Joe and I could associate our, our 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 people. Our people are from Southern Italy. They were they were poor farmers. You know, uh, my mother always likes to try to guilt us and say that, you know, hey, once in a while we were able to get, a, you know, a piece of meat. Most of the time it was veggies. But having said that, <laughs> uh, Padre Pio was was a farm boy. That's how he grew up. What was, what was his early life like? What was his family like? Were they pious people? Yes, and by the way, I'll say I'm I'm from Southern, my family's Southern Italian. Also, my my last name's Scottish, but but uh, through my father's side, we're all Sicilians. Uh, so, <laughs> I incorporate, in in this book, I have lots of uh, I have lots of Italian phraseology that I picked up in my family growing up. Uh, and then, of course, my dad complained about it. He said, "These are these are Sicilian phrases. Italian, Sicilian are two different languages. It, Italians don't speak that way." So it was funny. <laughs> but uh, uh, at any rate, yes, uh, Padre Pio was a farm boy. His family um, they lived in Pietrocina, in uh, in southern Italy. But they, um, I would say, they were of the low. They were <clears throat> they were not poor, but they were not. Uh, I'd say they were uh, transitioning out of the lower class into the, the middle class. They had a, a home in town, but they also had a field uh, outside of town in a place called Piano Romana, uh, where they would farm and, and pasture sheep and, and whatnot. So uh, his, his family was very pious. Um, the faith was very important to his mother and father. They had, uh, they had daily devotions, daily rosary, mass. They went on pilgrimages uh, together to the local shrines around southern Italy. Um, so it was very integrated into his life. Um, I'd say they were, <clears throat> they were financially stable. But they certainly didn't have much uh, extra money. Uh, like I said, they owned a, they owned a piece of property they could farm. Um, they always had enough, but when they needed extra, they had to go to extraordinary lengths. So when Padre Pio wanted to study uh, for uh, to join the Capuchins, it required his father to travel to the United States on more than one occasion to find work. Um, so I'd say it was a it was an agricultural life. It was a uh, a difficult life, but they always had enough, and uh, and it was a very physical life as well. Padre Pio grew up in a time when uh, when when people. It's really interesting time frame that he lives in because 
when he's born, when he's young, he's still living in a time where people are, uh, you know, harvesting things with a scythe and using mules to, to pull carts. And by the time he dies, we have atom bombs and things like that. Mm -hmm. So his life really spans the transition uh, into the modern uh, period. So uh, I'd say he had a pretty standard life of a, a you know, a, a lower middle class Italian peasant of the early 20th century. Philip Campbell joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. The book he's recently written is Wounds of Love, the story of St. Padre Pio. That's available at Tan Books. Joe Resinello. Let's talk a little bit about what you were saying about how, like, you know, he was Italian. He had a pious life. I mean, you have an Italian background. So, mm -hmm. you know, Joe and I, how things have changed, really. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to gauge your age. I'll tell you mine. I'm 52. Yeah. Um, you know, really, Italians came and they just matriculated into America. They made some money, and they forgot mm -hmm. about the faith. And not all. I don't want to mm -hmm. blanket it, but a large swath of Italians, and I still live in an Italian neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't go to church. I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not – again, I have eyes. I'm not saying I'm better than them or worse than them or they're going to hell and I'm going to heaven. But what I am saying is they don't go to church. And, yeah. I mean, this is just like like a sad reality of what yeah. is going on please comment on it because it's true it is true my uh my uh my sicilian grandmother you know she had a uh she's she's passed on now but she had a picture of saint joseph in her in her bedroom you know that she kept up her whole life she had a she had a priest that she communicated with by letter for many decades but she she hadn't gone to mass or she told me she hadn't gone to confession since 1939 you know, it was like it was like she very much relished the Catholic identity that came with being Sicilian. Uh, but in terms of the actual practice of the faith, it seemed like it wasn't as important. And uh, I think this happens a lot where you have these um, these ethnic groups that, you know, whether the Irish, the Polish, the United States and in that first generation being Catholic in a majority Protestant country like the United States, uh, it was very much a powerful factor of social cohesion. This was a way to stay connected with your roots, just to have that sense of community. You know, you come over to the United States, you don't know anyone. It's all different institutions, Protestant, but at least we've got this tight-knit Catholic community here in uh, Detroit or New York or, or wherever, you know. But then I think what happens is over time, uh, second generation starts to assimilate. They start to feel more American, you know, and then uh, hanging on to the faith and the culture of the old country isn't as important anymore. And they start to just become Americanized. And I think that would happen in any country. But I think also just the fact that the whole culture is becoming more secularized really accelerates and makes this problem worse. Now, uh, I've gone back and forth about this w in my own mind and with people questioning, you know, well, maybe the reason this happened is because the Catholic faith in that day was too much of a cultural thing and not so much about personal commitment. You know, maybe, uh, you know, it's like a, like a, like a Frenchman once said, you know, yes, I'm, I'm Catholic. Like I am French, like I'm white, you know, is that the right way to view the, the faith? That is just something that you in, inherit by virtue of your birth. You know, you can argue that if, uh, you know, perhaps if, if you have a more of a personal, uh, dedication to it, then you're less likely to lose it. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, the essence of the Catholic faith is that it is something that's handed on. It is something that 
um, you know, th- that is passed on by tradition. And, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing that we have these uh, cultures that are so deeply rooted in Catholicism. That's just part of who they are. And I wish that we, you know, I hope that in the future uh, that we find more of a balance. You know, I love my Sicilian Catholic heritage. I also love that it's something that I personally choose every day, you know, and uh, I'm sure you guys feel the same. And I, I hope that in the future, if Catholicism endures as a cultural expression amongst these groups, that that they will find that balance as well. I, I, I agree. I have to say that, you know, it's something that I think about a lot. And I'm glad we're talking about it here with Phil Campbell at the front line with Joe and Joe. Um, and we'll get back to Padre Pio is that. As I've as I've grown in the faith, because I left for quite some time, not left, just just wasn't practicing, just mm-hmm. not even lukewarm, just not really. To prepare. I was cultural, culturally Catholic. I had all the sacraments. But I will tell you this, what you start to realize is that, OK, yes, I grew up. Joe and I both grew up in Newark. Again, you mentioned Italian-American neighborhood churches, parishes, mm-hmm. you know, big parishes all over the place. Um, and what I find later on is, no, no, my people aren't my people are. You know, as far as my ethnic group, yeah, I'm Italian, but my people are Catholics and Mm -hmm. we we should we should look at it that way as far as our community. I mean, look, the old neighborhoods are gone. And even if they weren't, you know, African-American Catholics or Hispanic Catholics or (laughs) Polish Catholics, whoever our identity is Catholic. And I I think that's that's what we need. I, I mean, I know we need it here. Okay, Italy's showing some signs of hope. I don't want to point to the election of Maloney, but at least you you see some sort of resistance to the trends. Okay, in Italy, um, I, I mean, I think that's what we have to get to here in America. We're too divided along racial and ethnic lines, where we say, no, 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 our our identity is Catholic, and we need to live that out in our lives. That's what that's what we learn from the saints. That's what we learn from uh, from someone like Padre Pio. That's why he's loved. Uh, yeah. I love your comments on that, Philip. And if we can, we'll we'll bring it back to Pio in a minute. But this this brings up an important point, which is that, um, you know, identity is really at the center of the the crisis of our time, which you know you see this. Uh, we won't talk about politics, but much of the political divisions in our country are based on what does it mean to be American? Do we embrace? Our own history and traditions, or do we apologize for them? You know, or uh, or in the Catholic Church, what do we do with our two thousand years of heritage? Uh, is it still valid today, or do we need to revamp it for modern times? So there's all these questions of identity, and in the old days, before the globalized world, uh, people found their identity so much more in their ethnic group and in their community. You know, and I can see how, in some occasions, maybe people thought. Uh, you know, practically speaking, maybe you know, I'm Italian first, and and then I'm Catholic because I'm Italian. <laughs> you know, because that's yeah, what right, Italian, right, right. Italians are. But I think you know those those old divisions have kind of broken down in the globalized world. You know, uh, and now if we are going to find our identity, you know, it really does, like you said, it has to be in our Catholicism. And then once we're within our Catholic faith, then we recognize the true. You know, Catholic means universal. The, uh, the beauty of the faith, the universality, is the multiplicity of ethnic expressions in the faith. Uh, and I, I agree with you. Catholics are my people. I love it when I, when I uh, you know, I just completed a book on the history of the Philippines and, and was deeply immersed for years in studying Filipino Catholicism. Uh, and I felt like they were my people, you know. Or when I see the Vietnamese, uh, Our Lady of Levang, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary dressed in traditional Vietnamese garb, I... You know, my my heart leaps at it. I recognize those th- 
you know, that, that's my people also, you know, and I love the multiplicity of the faith. I love the universality of it. And, uh, and you're right. That is the answer. That's who our people are. And we have to make that Catholicity more of a reality. And that's really, you know, it's exemplified by Padre Pio's life because, uh, even within his own life, uh, he had a global reach, you know, uh, and not just global Catholics. He, he, he reached Protestants, you know, non-believers, uh, everybody was impacted by him in some way. So I think he's a good emblem of that. Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely agree. I think I was at, I was at Seton Hall university and I was sitting there with a, with a kid who was about to become my best friend. And I didn't know that. And we've been best friends ever <laughs> since. And I remember him mentioning Padre Pio. He was all excited. But I said, in my mind, I'm going, this is like 1980 something. And I'm uh -huh. like, who, who, who in the world is Padre Pio? I never heard of Padre Pio, <laughs> um, but Joe Resinella. Talk a little bit about the stigmata. I mean, most people know that Padre Pio had the stigmata. Um, when did it appear in his body? I mean, how did he react to it? But I think I'd want to focus, too, on how did the church react to it? Because he didn't have an easy go, Padre Pio. Um, the church wasn't exactly uh, rolling out the red carpet for him. They were very suspicious of the, the stigmata at first, and he had a, a tough go. I mean, eventually they acknowledged it. Um, talk a little bit about that. I think that's interesting. Yeah, well, the, the stigmata is the, the wounds of Christ that manifest in the body of certain holy people. And in the case of Padre Pio, we're talking about the physical wounds of Christ. Some, some saints will have uh, like a spiritual wound that is not visible. But, but Padre Pio had visible holes in his hands and feet and side. And they appeared gradually. Uh, forgive me, I, I might have the date wrong, but I want to say it was 1919. Um, when they okay. appeared, but, but before it, it was, it was around that time shortly after world war one, but even before they appeared physically, he had begun to have pains in his hands and, and feet, uh, that were pain raw to the touch, but there wasn't any physical signs. And then they appeared one day after a particularly intense, uh, spiritual ecstasy he went into in the chapel. Um, uh, Padre Pio's wounds were not. Uh, the church was extremely skeptical about them. They sent many medical uh, professionals to examine Padre Pio. He was examined, poked, prodded multiple times, and there was very disparaging reports written about him. Um, basically, the local doctor uh, believed they were authentic, but many of the other doctors that were sent uh, by the Vatican um, wrote uh, reports saying they believe they were fraudulent. One said that he was pouring acid on his hands. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and then the other do other doctors would rebut that and say, this doesn't look anything like an, an acid wound. You know, there's no burning. There's no anything like that. Um, others uh, hypothesized like some sort of powerful suggestion where it was kind of a psychosomatic uh, thing where he was just believing he had the wounds and, and kind of picking at them and causing them to appear. There was all sorts of skepticism about it. And uh, Padre Pio was accused of being a fraud. He was frequently uh, in reports by investigators. He was called dumb. Uh, he, he was uh, insulted as like a simple country uh a, a country bumpkin peasant who was ignorant of theology or the most basic principles of spiritual life had no business instructing anybody else. Uh, he constantly suffered uh, restrictions because of this. He was at various times 
forbidden from preaching, from having anyone attend his masses, forbidden from writing letters, from spiritual direction. Uh, at certain points, he was forbidden from having confessions. He, he spent some of his life in total lockdown from any communication with the faithful. Um, and this was really unjust because Pio never sought these things. Uh, he never went out and tried to, I mean, he tried to hide his stigmata. Um, he hid them behind gloves. He didn't let people see them. He once had a hernia operation uh, and refused to have anesthesia uh, because he believed that while he, he was under obedience from his superiors to not let anyone look at his wounds. And he knew that if he was knocked out with anesthesia during an operation, that the doctors would not be able to resist and would look at his stigmata. And so he insisted on having a hernia operation without any anesthesia whatsoever. So this is not the actions of a man that was trying to seek attention for himself. Uh, in, that, in that situation, he passed out from the pain. They, were, they started operating on his hernia, and he, he passed out from pain. And then sure enough, while he was passed out, the doctors looked at his stigmata. <laughs> and then when he woke up from, uh, from the surgery, uh, he, he pointed at the doctor and said, I know what you did. May God forgive you. <laughs> um, so this isn't the actions of a man that was trying to use his stigmata for nefarious purposes to try to draw attention to himself. Uh, but he was accused of it nonetheless and, and suffered not just once, but multiple times, uh, persecution of the church that considered him fraudulent. That went right up to the Pope. Uh, Pius XI specifically uh, believed Padre Pio was, uh, was a, a fraud, and John Twenty-Third did not think highly of him either. So, um, so yeah, it went all the way up to the Pope. Uh, uh, Philip Campbell, I want to just uh, I want to continue that a little bit. All right, it's an important point that, that Joe and I. It's, it's a constant uh, topic on the show um, at the front line with Joe and Joe. If you're just joining us, we have Philip Campbell. We're discussing his new book, Wounds of Love: The Story of Saint Padre Pio. I'd love for you to talk about his obedience, though, because we could look at it from the outside and say, "Well, wow, that's pretty unjust, don't you think?" And 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 maybe rightfully so. But Pio took a vow of obedience, and he took that vow very seriously. And I'd love for you to comment on that. He did. And I get asked this question a lot uh, about Pio's obedience. And we have to be very careful with how we frame this question, because the first thing we have to remember is that Pio is a Capuchin with professed vows of obedience. So the manner of Pio's obedience is under a different level of scrutiny than, say, you or I, who are not a professed religious and don't have vows of obedience. So people will often take Pio's obedience and say, this is uh, how we should react when we have, you know, when we are trampled by those in authority. Yes and no. <laughs> yes, Pio is an example of obeying and just submitting to the providence of God and the circumstance that life brings you. But you and I are not professed Capuchins. <laughs> you know, we don't have these specific vows of obedience, which in the religious life are considered to be more radical because they're seeking an evangelical perfection. Pio was always obedient. Um, he, he was obedient to whatever came down the pike from the church authorities. Um, when he suffered restrictions, um, the, uh, the mayor of uh, San Giovanni Rotondo wanted to publish a scathing critique of the bishop in the, uh, in the town newspaper. 
and he, he showed Pio the newspaper and, and Pio grabbed him by the scuff of the neck and said, why are you publishing this trash? And uh, he, he basically said that, I, I can't remember the exact quote, he says something like, the church is my mother, even when she's hitting me, you know? Um, so he, he, he tells the bishop to go, re, or the, the mayor to go repent and stop publishing trash. Um, but on the other hand, um, Pio never gave obedience beyond what was strictly required of him. Um, uh, in this matter. So for example, uh, at one point, a doctor comes from the Vatican and says, I'm here from the Vatican to examine your wounds. And Pio says, can I see your paperwork? Can I see the letter that says you're here from the Vatican? And the, the doctor says, well, no, but I'm a famous doc. I'm the, he, I can't remember his name, but he was a famous doctor of the Vatican. And he says, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Why would I lie? And, and Pio says, unless you show me your letter, I'm not letting you touch me. <laughs> and so the guy is furious and he has to go all the way back to Rome and get a letter. And then he comes back. And then as soon as he has the letter, Pio says, okay. And he, he, he submits right away. But the point is Pio, uh, Pio was not a doormat. He, he wasn't like, Oh, whatever you want to do to me is fine. You know, he obeyed insofar as he was required to, but like that example shows, uh, you know, he wasn't going to just, uh, you know, just kind of bow over and, and let people stomp on him, you know, unless it was strictly under obedience. Now that ended up having a, a ramifications where that doctor was very angry at Pio after that. And he wrote a scathing report back to Rome. He said, Pio is obstinate, uh, disobedient, this and that. And this ended up uh, against him. But so I think Pio exemplifies, uh, I do think he exemplifies obedience, but, uh, People often have a hard time distinguishing obedience from just, uh, you said, being a doormat when someone's trying to trample on you. So Pio absolutely submitted to the church, and he would not hear any word of, you know, people speaking ill of his superiors, criticizing their decisions. But Pio didn't like their decisions. Uh, he, he, he was deeply wounded by them, and whenever he had the opportunity to push back, as long as it was within legitimate canonical form he certainly did so thank you for that uh philip campbell joe resinello we have a couple minutes before the break uh, i'll give you both the sign when we're, when uh when the break is coming up but go ahead joe sure talk about the mass i mean uh padre pio's mass was was famous like people would queue all morning to go to the mass um in fact i i recently read a book from gabriel amorth who was a famous italian exorcist mm -hmm. who actually was a devotee to Padre Pio, knew him and would queue for the mass um, yeah. many times, like in his, you know, priestly life. Uh, talk about the mass itself. Yeah, um, Pio's masses were very famous. Um, people did spend time in line to get into his mass uh, because he said it with such devotion. Um, they were very long. <laughs> that That's the one thing everybody says about them. They they went on for a long time because he said the mass ver with very slowly and with great deliberation, and he was often overcome with emotion. And I think this translated to, uh, to the congregations. We really love the idea that, you know, Catholicism is a very ritualistic faith, obviously, ritualistic religion. Um, but 
even though we have these rituals, we want to see that they're meaningful. You know, we don't want to feel like our priests are just going through the motions. We want to see that they are deeply entering into the mystery of Christ's passion. And Pio exemplified that so perfectly. He was deeply moved by the mass and the contemplations of Jesus' suffering, so much that he would often have to stop when he was saying mass. He would have to stop because he was overcome with uh, with just emotion at the contemplation of Christ's sufferings. And so he would say a word of the canon, and then he would he would stop, and he would be uh, deeply moved, and then he would go on, and he would say it very slowly. And parts of the mass that maybe you know, a priest might get through in five minutes, Pio would take 25 minutes to, to say them. Um, but far from being irritated that his masses were taking so long, the people who witnessed them uh, were profoundly touched and, and felt that the way Pio offered the mass really drew, uh, really pulled it all together, helped them enter into what the suffering and redemption of Jesus Christ really meant. And so I think it was very spiritually edifying for people that, that even today, people like Father Amorth, who's, uh, I don't know his age, but he's very elderly, you know, they're still talking about it 40 years later that they got mm -hmm. to see a mass with Padre Pio and what that was like. Uh, so uh, I, I'd say that he is just the perfect, you know, we have this saying, Catholicism, the priest is a alter Christus, another Christ, or that he acts in persona Christi, in the person of Jesus Christ. Pio just perfectly exemplifies that by the way he enters into that mystery of redemption as he's saying the, the liturgy. Philip Campbell joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Philip, where are the title of the book and where our audience can buy it before we go to the break? Wounds of Love, the story of St. Padre Pio. You can get it directly from Tan Books or you can just get it off of Amazon. All right. Uh, and obviously, everybody out there at Veritas knows what I'm about to say. Don't buy it from Amazon. Buy it from Tam Books. <laughs> Support our Catholic publishers, please. Our Catholic authors, our Catholic publishers. Tan is awesome. And 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 they have stones in this in this spiritual battle that we're in. Um, they're a great publisher, and we need to support them. So please, don't buy it from Amazon. Buy it from Tan. Go ahead, Joe. That's a Jersey, a Jersey term. I just wanted to throw it out. Well, to it's you. a family show, Joe. Come on. <laughs> All right. So Philip Campbell's joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. When we come back, I'm going to start the discussion because we talked about mass. I want to talk about confession. So stick right. around. We have another great segment. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello. We're way, way, way in the breach with Philip Campbell. We're discussing his new book, Wounds of Love, the Story of St. Padre Pio. That is available at Tam Books. So before the break, um, we were talking about the Mass, the popularity. I mean, Mass should be popular anyway among, you know, amongst Catholics. But, you know, just keeping it with Padre Pio, his, his Masses were immensely popular. Um, now, Padre Pio sat in the confession booth. Let's talk about confession. He sat in there, from what I understand, for hours and hours and hours with lines of people, uh, you know, waiting to, to for him to hear their confession. Uh, you could get into, Philip, if you like, uh, certain abilities he had, uh, supernatural abilities, I guess you would call them, uh, yeah. and, and things like that. Really hash that out a little bit. Why did people want to go to him for confession? And what was he able to do? Um, uh, what did God give him the gifts to be able to do? Well, let's talk first about just his natural way of hearing confession, and then we'll talk about the supernatural aspect of it. Um, 
Uh, Padre Pio always seemed to be a little mystified at his popularity as a confessor because he seems in the confessional to only have done what any confessor should do, which was just honestly examine the person's sins and tell them what they needed to hear. Um, and in that sense, he does really what any confessor should do. And a lot of times his advice to us today, you look at it and it seems very simplistic. Uh, you know, like a woman comes to him, a woman comes to him and, and talks about her, her spiritual life and in turmoil and, and this and that. And what can she do? And he, he says, uh, well, how often do you go to mass? And she says, uh, once a week. And he says, go every day. And then that's like his big, insightful advice, you know, or, you know, uh, uh, this wasn't in confession, but a, a young man wrote to him and, you know, said, uh, I, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to grow my spiritual life. I pray this much, you know, and Pio just says, pray more than that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so in, in certain respect, his advice, it's, it's almost disarming for its simplicity, you know. Um, he really, he has the gift that many saints do where they hear the gospel and they just take it, they, they don't complicate it, you know. He reminds me of St. Anthony of the desert. He hears the gospel, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And Anthony goes, okay, I'm going to literally do that right now. And then he just goes off into the desert and becomes the first great desert father, you know. Pio had that kind of childlike faith where he hears the gospel and he just takes it to heart and does it. And this was the kind of advice he gave people. He he has a reputation, uh, I think, in Catholic lore of being a hard confessor, like being hard on people, being strict with them. And this is true when he discerned that somebody was being insincere. He had almost no patience for people who came into the confessional trying to justify themselves, trying to uh, cover up their sins, trying to come in and preserve, you know, anything but a humble laying of your soul before God, he was very, I guess we'd say, intolerant of that. And he would chastise people uh, if they came into the confessional and were insincere. He would tell them, uh, he, he would just tell them they were being insincere. He would, he would say, stop lying to yourself. Stop telling me lies. <laughs> you know, he would, uh, he would tell them to leave and come back when they were truly sorry, you know, things like that. Um, or there's a famous story of the woman who came into the confessional wearing uh, an inappropriately uh, short, you know, skirt, immodestly dressed, and and he he uh, he chastised her and said, "Why do you come in here dressed like that? Get out of here!" And sent her away. So he could be really sharp if he thought that people were, I guess we could say, abusing the confessional or that they weren't sincere. But that's only half the story because to the people who were sincere, he was exceptionally tender, very compassionate, and. Uh, and beloved as a confessor, uh, people, that's why they waited so long to come to confession with him, because he empathized with them. He understood where they were coming from. He wasn't just all like, uh, you know, he wasn't just a guy that admitted sparks when he walked because he was so tough. You know, <laughs> he was very, very compassionate and gentle to sincere penitence, you know. But I think he what happens is he has a very well developed sense of the uh, the dignity of the sacrament he doesn't want to see the sacrament abused just like we wouldn't want to see the eucharist abused you know um so uh he has this reputation as a great confessor people start coming to him they start forming lines eventually they have to install um uh oh i'm, I'm drawing a blank you know the things you walk through when you're getting on a roller coaster <laughs> the things that uh, that style 
yeah, turnstile. Like, well, not a turnstile, but like the, the the things on the the bars that like corral the line. You know, like when you're standing, when you're going through the TSA at the airport. You oh, uh, the oh, uh, stanchions, stanchions. <laughs> yes, stanchions. Yeah. They have to install uh, uh, stanchions in the uh, outside his confessional to keep the people in order. Then they have to assign multiple other Capuchin brothers to kind of uh, work the line to keep people, um, you know, uh, keep people uh, together. And then they have to, they have to even make a rule that you can't, you can't go to confession to him more than I think once every, uh, is once every two or three weeks, because there was people who would come to confession to him every day if they were allowed to, that's how much they loved it. So they made a rule. And, uh, <laughs> and one time a guy was so desperate to confess to Padre Pio, he, he confessed to him, and then he ignored the two-week rule, and he came back within one week, and he goes into Padre Pio's confessional, and Padre Pio says, how long has it been since your last confession? And the guy lies right away, and Padre Pio says, why are you beginning your confession with a lie? <laughs> you know, And he knows right away. But that, this is kind of a good segue into his supernatural abilities, because besides being just a very good um, you know, pastor, being compassionate with people, telling what they needed to hear. He had these supernatural insights into the state of people's souls. Um, he was able to tell them, sometimes tell them their sins. Um, there was an occasion where two atheist Freemasons came into the confessional to play with Padre Pio. They'd heard rumors of this man, and they wanted to make a fake confession to just mess with him. And they go into the confessional, and Pio immediately says, "Like I know why you're here." And he, he's, and they're they're kind of blown away. And he says, "You you think you're trying to fool me?" But and then Pio starts telling him what their real sins are. Uh, he knows what they've been up to, and uh, and they're blown away. And they come out of the confessional crying, you know, each one in turn, and they become daily communicants after that. Or, uh, you know, or sometimes a penitent would confess a certain sin, and Pio would have knowledge into the background of, of the sin. Uh, you know, like a, like a, a man came in and confessed that he was, um, you know, that he was struggling with uh, with chastity. You know. And Pio says, like, well, stop going down to that bar and seeing the woman on Friday night. And and the guy didn't tell him about the bar or the woman on mm. Friday night, but Pio knew about it. Um, so he was just giving these insights to just tell people what they needed to hear. And so many of these stories have come down. Uh, obviously, Pio didn't divulge them, but the, the penitents came out of the confessional and just said, uh, you can't believe what just happened to me in there. And they, they told these stories. Um, this was disbelieved also. Uh, there, was, um, there was accusations that Pio was manipulating people in the confessional uh at one point somebody wiretapped his confessional which as catholics that that's very that that should be revolting to us the idea of someone wiretapping the confessional uh nobody it was never found out who did it um i suspect it was someone in the church probably uh i, I don't think it was a lay person i think it was a uh, probably you know one of his enemies you know a clerical opponent but they wiretapped his confessional to listen to what he was saying to people in there. And he discovered it. He, he was in his confessional one day and he, he saw something amiss and he, he, he was like, what's that little, you know, black ball. And he pulled on it and put, uncovered a whole wiretap, you know, never figure out what it was, but this shows you that even something as wholesome as just being a good confessor, he was attacked for, you know, uh, wherever the devil could find an opportunity to attack him. He did even with something like confession. Mm. Philip Campbell's joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing Wounds of Love, the story of St. Padre Pio. Joe Resinello. It's funny. I actually know a family from New York um, that had a Padre Pio story. The father 
went to confession with him. He went there mm-hmm. with his his mother when he was a young man, um, and he wouldn't absolve him. He wasn't mm. nasty to him or harsh with him, I should yeah. say harsh, but he wouldn't give him absolution. And then he helped him. He said it was a very like plain vanilla confession. He would not give him absolution. And then he was very old. He helped him in the friary because he couldn't walk. Him yeah. and another brother, he completely changed his life. And this guy was like a rock star Catholic in New York City, raised money, like had a beautiful family. To be honest with you, he built a church in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Because his wife was from Sri Lanka just from that encounter. And the reason why I bring it up is like when you encounter a saint, that is like significant because they just exude holiness. Like, like that is nothing to understand, like to, like, like to be understated. Like yeah. the power of a saintly person. That's not exactly like, you know, the guy rose from the dead, you know, but it was a, ma- a very basic encounter. He changed his whole life. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and, and you think that when you encounter a saint, even if they do something that's, you know, we go back to the principle of St. Therese of doing ordinary things with extraordinary love, right? Um, even the ordinary things the saints do, they're so impactful just that story that he he just for whatever reason didn't absolve him but with the amount of grace that Padre Pio has it's life changing on this guy <laughs> you know uh it changes his entire life around um and i think you're right when we encounter saints uh even seemingly small encounters with them uh they just exude that grace of god and it's transformative it reminds you that grace is a real thing. It has real power. We often talk of grace just as a thing we're in or out of. I'm in the state of grace. I'm out of the state of grace, you know, but grace is a, it's an energy. It's a power. It's a transformative thing that can work real changes in the world. And the saints really manifest that when you encounter them. Uh, And I think, I mean, that happened for Padre Pio to this day, as I go around promoting this book, because it hasn't really been that long, you know, since there's still thousands of people alive today who knew Padre Pio. I'm constantly being told stories like this, like, oh, my my dad ran into him once and he said this, and we still remember it to this day. It, you know, or it changed our lives. He did this for my uncle, you know, Uh, so many stories. And it just blows me away thinking about how the grace of God worked through him, even in these seemingly small things so we talked about the mass we talked about confession all right um as they relate to padre pio let's talk about prayer Hmm. let's talk about weapons spiritual weapons okay obviously we as catholics we know our greatest spiritual weapon um in the prayer department is the rosary okay and padre pio correct me if i'm wrong philip campbell he had a particularly uh, a particular devotion to the rosary if you'd like to talk about that a little bit i think that's important for our, our our audience yeah, he picked up devotion to the rosary. I mean, his family had a devotion to the rosary, you know, when he was a young boy. So this was something that he picked up from uh, from youth. But once he entered the Capuchins, it became intensified. And early on in his Capuchin vocation, he made a, uh, a resolution to say the entire rosary uh, daily. Now, when we say the entire rosary, you know, we we might think of just saying, you know, saying the five mysteries, but he meant the entire, all the mysteries, you know, like all 15 of them, right, every day. 
And then, uh, and then at a certain point, he made a resolution, just say it as much as possible. He was constantly saying the rosary. He even had a, <laughs> he, when he was younger, he had a contest with another, another Capuchin about who could say the rosary the most. This was when he was still, uh, still kind of smoothing out his bumps a little bit. There was a little bit of cockiness in there, I, I think, when he figured, like, I'm going to say the rosary more than you, you know. And we tell the story in the book of how, it went, how that went down. But it shows his great love of the rosary. And, uh, and he made a resolution that he was just going to say it as much as possible. And so he constantly had a rosary wrapped around his fist. He was constantly, when he's walking to and fro, you'd see his mouth just murmuring the prayers of the rosary. It was like his breath. He just, he just did it constantly. He had a very deep relationship with the Blessed Mother. Uh, and he, uh, he constantly turned to her, constantly said the prayers of the rosary. And he really, um, I think he really got to the point with the rosary that we all aspire to. For many of us, prayer, we're still at a point in our spiritual lives where prayer is a, a chore, where we have to like fight through dryness and inattentiveness to focus on our prayers. But he interiorized the rosary to the point where it was just like his heartbeat, you know, where it was just what he was doing all the time, just calling upon the Blessed Mother, repeating these prayers, entering into them. Uh, you can see him in these various things he's doing. Like I said, going to and fro. He's he's going around, you know, waving to people, blessing people. But in his other hand, you see he's moving his fingers over the beads. His lips are kind of moving a little bit. It's just nonstop. Um, it's hard to imagine someone being more devoted to this than than he was. Um, and he was graced with with uh, with seeing the Blessed Mother. With uh, you know, with seeing. Uh, having interactions with her, though he didn't speak much about them, but there was various points in his life, especially when he was old, where, uh, you know, he had a picture when he was dying, he had a picture of his mother on the wall and he saw the blessed mother when he was dying. And he said, I, he said, I see two mothers and uh, the friars that were tame said like, Oh, his vision is blurred. There's only one picture of his mother on the wall. But, uh, but then he elaborated. That's not what he was speaking of. He was, he was, seeing his real mother and then the blessed mother was there also at the moment of his death. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it except that he, he absolutely loved the rosary. And we, and we should, we should, as we do with the saints, we should use that as, as inspiration to pick up our rosaries and, and pray every day. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, but correct me if I'm wrong, Philip Campbell, he called it the weapon. He would tell us, say, you know, give me my weapon. Yes. Um, yes. You know. And he, and he was, uh, he was a spiritual warrior. I don't know if you want to talk about him getting beat, beat up by the devil too, but you know, the 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 devil uh, the devil had a particular loathing for Padre Pio, and uh, Padre Pio suffered uh, suffered the kind of attacks from the devil that you only see with real holy people, where the devil can't succeed at tempting them to sin. They can't succeed in these other ways, so he just resorts to beating him, <laughs> just in sheer rage. And there was times where. Padre Pio would come down in the morning and he was beaten and bloody, you know, or where, uh, and everybody at the monastery knew this was going on. A bishop once came to visit Padre Pio's monastery and the superior of the Capuchin monastery told him of these, uh, that the devil would attack Padre Pio and this bishop didn't believe it. And then while they were sitting down for dinner, they heard like a bunch of rattling and noise and banging upstairs 
you know, and the friars were like, oh, that's that's a demonic attack. And the bishop didn't believe it. He said, that's Pio rattling his chairs around, you know, like trying to. And then Pio walks out of the kitchen right at that moment, like carrying a bunch of dishes. He's not even up there. You know, he's he's downstairs. And uh, and the, the bishop is, like, oh, this is medieval nonsense. Like, and then Pio's like right there. And and then he hears the rattling again. And he's like, oh, my gosh. He's, and they, they all cross themselves. And the bishop's like, I've had enough. I, thank you for your hospitality. I'll be on my way. <laughs> but um. <laughs> There was a there was one occasion when Pio was taking a group of uh, a group of children. Uh, he he did youth direction for a while when he was younger. He was uh, he he led the boys of the parish, and uh, he took them on a hike. And he was uh, he was distraught, and he he had been physically he'd been physically assaulted. Like it was clear he had like he had like bruises on his face. And the 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 boys asked him what was wrong, and he said that. He said, one of you last night was tempted to unchastity, and I prayed for you. And because of my prayers, the devil couldn't touch you. But he was angry with me, and he beat me because of your temptation. And the boys were just like, they all started like crying, and they all like dropped to their knees in the grass, and they all start, you know, praying together. And uh, so the devil had a certain hatred for Pio and he couldn't touch him any other way. He couldn't, couldn't get him to sin. Couldn't, you know, get him to lose faith. And so he just resorted to doing things like knocking his, knocking his books off the shelf, throwing chairs, hitting Pio, things like that. But even that stopped over time. Uh, and the devil eventually left him alone in that regard. Wounds of love. The story of St. Padre Pio is the book. The author is Philip Campbell. He's joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Go out and buy it from Tan Books. That's where you could get the book. We encourage you to do so. Joe Resinello. I mean, we could talk for hours about Padre Pio. We could talk about the hospital that he built. I'm glad you brought up the attacks from the devil. And frankly, the lives of the saints are amazing. This has been a great conversation, and I'm so glad we have more time because they're amazing. And people should learn about the saints. One aspect of Padre Pio that I was always fascinated by was obviously he had the stigmata, but Mm -hmm. two weeks before he died, it disappears. And the skin on his hands were perfect. Talk about that because that should blow people away. Because I mean, like that is a tangible like sign of holiness, a stigmata. Not that many people in the two thousand years of you know Catholicism have had it. And then right before he dies, it disappears. No medical explanation. Right. Um, in fact, so what happens is uh, Pio had been ordered by his superiors to have red- regular medical examinations throughout his entire life. Um, so I don't remember if it was monthly or or every two months or whatever, but regularly he had a doctor's checkup uh, and they would check on the status of the stigmata. And these examinations continued through his entire life. Now, uh, when Pio is having his regular examination, uh, in, uh, I want to say early 19, I think he died September of 1968, um, or 69. I'm sorry. I can't remember the exact dates. Um, but the year he died, he was having his regular medical examination and the, the doctor who'd been examining him for years says, Pio, your, your wounds appear to be healing. They were still there, but they had started to exhibit signs of, of closing up. And uh, Pio had no explanation for it. The, well, Pio was, Pio was surprised. He said, are you sure? Are you positive? And the doctor said, yeah, look, I've been looking at these things for years. They're, they're closing up. 
And, uh, you know, he asked Pio, what do you think this means? And Pio said, I don't know, but I think Pio knew. I think, I think Pio probably had a hunch that that meant that his time for this world was, was not long. So they start to heal up. And then sure enough, a few weeks later, he falls ill and then he dies. And after he dies, uh, the Capuchins, they have to start preparing him for burial. And so, of course, the first thing they all want to do is see the see the stigmata, right? And they have to they have to undress him anyways, you know, to get him ready for burial. So they take his shoes and his gloves off, and then, as I understand it, um, while they were preparing him for burial, the remaining they, they were still there. Uh, they weren't solid holes anymore. They were just like uh, um, kind of like red red depressions in his skin. Uh, and then while they're preparing for burial, they heal up until there's just faint pink spots left right before their eyes. Uh, and then that's it. <laughs> they, they close up, you know, because Pio's journey on this earth is over. You know, he bore those wounds as long as he was expected to be in, uh, as long as he was in the flesh making intercession for people in the image of Christ. And then he's, you know, he goes on to his heavenly reward and there's no more purpose for those wounds. And so they heal up. Uh, yeah. Right at the moment, right almost at the moment of death, it really is stunning. And uh, that was something I didn't know about Pio either until I started studying his life. I, I didn't realize they healed up at the time of his death, which is phenomenal because usually, you know, uh, <laughs> usually really old people, they don't heal very fast, you know, like, but my, my, uh, you know, my father's older now he's in his seventies. And when he gets a bruise or something, it's there for like a long time, you know, mm -hmm. it's there for weeks, you know, or he hits himself very lightly and he gets a big bruise, you know, and it's really amazing that Pio bears these wounds his whole life. And then when he's on the verge of death, like they just accelerate the healing accelerates. And by the time they're healed up, there's nothing left, but the, the tiniest little pink spot. And these are literal holes he had in his hands and side and feet that he carried for decades, and there's not even a scar. That's amazing. No, it really is amazing. Um, we talked about a little bit about obviously he had enemies in the church, okay? No. But at the end of the day, Padre Pio is a saint, and he was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So when did that happen? And what was the reaction? I mean, obviously, we, we, we mentioned, Philip, that, you know, he, he had these enemies— but obviously there were people that were supporting his cause of canonization. Oh, yeah. um, talk about that. Talk about his canonization, when it happened, and, and the reaction from, uh, well, really from Italy, the world, and, and the church itself. Well, what changed for Padre Pio was uh, the pontificate of Paul VI. Um, Paul VI was supportive of Padre Pio. Um, maybe not at first, but in the end, he was convinced of Padre Pio's sanctity, whereas John the 23rd had been more uh, skeptical. So with Paul the Sixth, this was while Pio was still alive. You saw the lifting of all the, the sanctions against Pio. He was allowed to just do his thing <clears throat> and to uh, to promote his international prayer group, which he didn't talk about, but he had started an international prayer movement. And so there was pa these these Padre Pio prayer groups that still exist today. They were established all over the world. Padre Pio had a global following. Uh, and I think in the last years of his life, all the accusations against him kind of were drowned out by the universal acclamation of this uh, holy man. Not to say there weren't still skeptics, but by and large, as time went on, 
the skeptics were reduced to, you know, uh, you know, like atheists or secular people, whereas by and large, the church came around to, uh, to uh, affirm Padre Pio's sanctity. I do not remember the date that he was beatified when they first established his public cultus, but his public cultus existed even before he was dead. <laughs> you know, people were convinced he was a saint. Um, he was canonized in 2002 in the fall of 2002 by, uh, by John Paul II. Um, and by that time, uh, there was already, uh, I mean, there was already millions of pilgrims going to San Giovanni Rotondo. Uh, I mean, Padre Pio, the way he became canonized, it really is an example for how it's supposed to work, where you have a person whose sanctity is very eminent. He's already regarded as holy by the people who knew him. He already has a cultus, a following. And then the church kind of steps in, does their investigation, recognizes the existence of the cultus, and says, yeah, from everything we can see, from everything we've examined, this is all legit. Uh, his miracles pan out, his life pans out, his spiritual teaching pans out. And then he was duly canonized in 2002, quite properly so. So, um, yeah, uh, I think when he died in 1968, uh, 100,000 people came to San Giovanni Rotondo in person to his funeral, uh, you know, which is huge. San Giovanni Rotondo is not a big place. <laughs> you know, mm. they came to this uh, this small town. Um, so today I'm just looking in the book at the stats I put in the book. Um, today, the church uh, in San Giovanni Rotondo has seating for 6,000 people with standing room for another 10,000. And that's just the main church. And then there's all these multiple chapels, confessionals, all these other things. Um Oh, okay. I have the date. He was beatified in 1999. So just, uh, what is that? 31 years after he died. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Philip Campbell, this has been a great conversation. I mean, like, like I said, Joe and I try to focus on the show, particularly with authors um, who have written about particular saints or groups of saints or whatever the case might be. So we're very pleased that you came on the show to enlighten our audience about this great and holy man. So one more time, Philip, I'm going to ask you the, the title of the book uh, and where folks could buy it. Yeah, the title is Wounds of Love, The Story of St. Padre Pio. You can buy it from Tan Books. And uh, if I can plug another book, sure. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is the flagship book in a series that we're hoping to do of, of saints. Uh, I just have another one that got released in this series, which is not a modern saint, but it's a saint that I wanted to draw more attention to. Uh, for those of you watching the video, I'm holding the book up. Uh, there's another book called Matron of Paris, the story of St. Genevieve. Um, and this will be available for purchase, uh, I think, December 13th. It's available on pre-order right now. We're hoping to do one male saint and one female saint each, each year from here on out. St. Genevieve is a saint of the early Middle Ages, the patron saint of Paris, fascinating woman who did many extraordinary things, uh, including saving her entire city from a famine and uh, <laughs> negotiating with kings and barbarian warlords. It's a fascinating story, especially if you like medieval history and Sounds all that like sort of stuff. Yeah, Sounds yeah. like it. Philip yeah. Campbell, thank you so much. You're welcome on the front line with Joe and Joe anytime, brother. Maybe we'll have you back when when the book on, uh, on, on the other saint you mentioned comes out. Yes, thank you. I would love to come back. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Philip Campbell. And thank you so much out there for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Help Joe and I out where you see us on social media, like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.